You guys know that Pastor Tony's been uh, teaching about the Holy Spirit and, you know, Pastor Marvin. We call him Pastor Marvin. He's an elder, but he's always, we're always having him up here and helping us. He's also been helping with that. Um, and the power of having spiritual community. If you haven't been able to listen back to those, if you weren't here, you need to go back and listen. And then you need to send it to people. You need to share those messages. Those are powerful messages. Next week, Tony is going to start a series about the fall feasts. And you're not going to want to miss this either, okay? And I'm going to go as far to say, you need to invite someone. You need to ask the Lord to give you the face or the name of a friend or family, coworker, neighbor that needs the hope of Jesus in their life. This is going to be so encouraging and so inspiring. So we, got, we, invite, we encourage you guys to invite people because you know what? We need our eyes wide open. We need our eyes wide open to what the Lord said would come, right? And we can count on this, guys. He told us what is to come, what we can expect, and how to live well. During these times. Did you know that? We can live well during these times. Now, my sermon title is Rocks, Tents, and Temples. All right? I'm, I don't have a sermon in a sentence. Tony asked me, and I just can't even do it. I wish I could. He's so skilled at that. Okay, so Rocks, Tents, and Temples. I wanted to give a setup for Tony's series, The Feasts, right? The seven feasts of the Lord are what are called holy convocations or these assemblies. Last week he said there's an idiom for the seven feasts of the Lord. They're called dress rehearsals, right? And we're in a dress rehearsal right now. And this is found in Leviticus 23 and they're significant and they're important for us to know about and to learn about because these are a prophetic timeline of the person and the work of Jesus. How many of you guys know you should know more about that? If it's teaching about Jesus, we need to know about this. And it is a prophetic timeline. You guys, your minds are going to be blown. But the entire point of these feasts is communion. It's communion, which is just, in a simple definition, the sharing and the exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings. Do you know that when you are communing with the Lord, that's what's happening? On this emotional and this spiritual level, you're communing with Him. But this practice... And this concept of communing with God didn't begin with the feasts, all right? It, didn't, it doesn't begin there, although it's going to paint a very vivid picture of what that means. To the worship of God, approaching God, encountering Him has existed from the beginning, right? Think about the garden. Think about Genesis. They were with God in the beginning. He was with them. They communed with God, but we know this story, right? This is one of the famous. This is like the first one in all Bible story books, right? They didn't believe God and they sinned. Their sin was unbelief. And then they found themselves naked, naked and ashamed. And so God took an innocent animal that had nothing to do with their sin and that animal's blood was poured out and he made skin coverings for them. He made clothes for Adam and Eve. This is the actual first sacrifice. The sacrificial system began right here. The atonement for sin began right there. He had to cover them. Did you know atonement means to cover? He had to cover their shame and their sin. And you know that that is a tenet of our faith. That is a major spine issue in the Christian faith. Is Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, 
There's no atonement. There's no forgiveness for sin. That's why we're here. This is what we're about. This system is established right here in the garden, this sacrificial system. It's crazy to think about, isn't it? We just think he made some clothes. We read those little Bible story books and we just see fig leaves. No, it says that he took the skin of an animal. They tried to cover themselves with leaves. They tried to hide in the bushes. But God said, you know, something innocent has to die to cover for you, to cover for what you did. And do you know right here, it's pointing to the ultimate work of Jesus. Right here, the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. It starts right here. God set the precedent in this moment, the pattern of communion with him. This is where it was set. And when you consider the word communion, you may think exactly what I think. Bread and juice, right? You grew up with the little gold trays with the little cups. How many of you guys grew grew up with those? getting passed around, and oh, I was always so excited about that. Here, you know, pre-COVID, we broke off matzah and dipped it in the juice. Now we've got these little convenient cups of oh-so-tasty juice and wafers that we'll get to sample later. And you're not wrong. You are not wrong to think of that, of the juice, of the cracker, when you think of communion. The very act of doing that is remembering the atoning work of Christ. It is the work of communion. His body, his blood poured out so that we can be restored. We can have restored communion with him. We can worship him. Now, as far back as Noah, okay? And we're gonna go far back, kids, and you guys need to listen in. God impressed on man's heart the necessity not just for communing with him, but listen up, creating a place of worship. That there is a location, a space. He told Noah, after all of the flood and stuff, build an, art, uh, an, um, an altar, and he did it. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he told them, gather stones, gather these rocks, not carved by human hands, but these rough-hewn stones that you pull from the ground, gather those And bring them and pile them up into a table or into an altar. Now, I have really great assistance today. And the kids who got here early enough are going to be doing an ancient work here at Soma. And you guys, go ahead. The ones who have rocks, if there's someone around you who doesn't have one, share it. And you're going to bring your rocks forward right up here. Come on, kids. Come on up. And you'll see we've already got a little pile started. This is from Pastor Tony's office. Just take your little handful of rocks and pile them around it. You don't have to balance it on top. It ain't going to stay, but go ahead. Pile them around. These guys are doing an ancient work, (laughs) bringing the stones to the altar. I really wanted to get those big old ones that weigh like 15 pounds, but I just felt like that might create problems. So... While these guys are quietly doing this, when you, when you put your stone down, you can go ahead and go back to your seat. That way you'll make room for other people. Thank you for doing that. You guys give these guys a hand. They're awesome. Don't worry. We're not sending them home with you parents. I know y'all have plenty of rock collections going. All the little bits and things they find at playgrounds. They'll probably have a good collection going already. You guys done? Awesome. 
All right, thank you. You can go on back to your seat. That looks good. Somebody did balance one. I wish y'all, can y'all see that? You did, dude. That is so cool. You guys did that. These places like this, obviously much bigger, but that's so cute, right? Little mini version. Would be scattered all over the Holy Land and really all over the Middle East. And very often they had names. And one of the famous names that you might remember is a place called Bethel. Bethel. Abram, before he was Abraham, he camped out there. A little later, Jacob has this massive encounter with the Lord, and he's like, dude, and he builds a big altar, and he says, house of God, surely God is here. This is Bethel, Bethel. I want you guys to look at this picture. This is from 1894. That is Bethel. Is that not so cool? I'm sure over time, it's been added to, but you can see that those are rough-hewn stones right there from the Holy Land. They, maybe they've been added to and taken from over time. I didn't have a chance to look at it, but I'm pretty sure there's probably something big and gaudy built around that right now, as tends to happen in the Holy Land and the sacred sites. But these were places, you guys, of worship, obviously. These were places of approach. These were places of encounter with God. And because it was a place of sacrifice... It meant that these were places of forgiveness, of covenant and renewing of a covenant. It was a place of intercession. These stones piled up, all right? These altars, these stones of remembrance also served as memorials. Because, you know, this was a highly nomadic society at the time. And they had to take themselves and their herds and their flocks and follow where the water was or where the food was. And they, were, they would have to travel and cover many, many miles and acres of land. But they would build these altars, you know, have these encounters, these special times with the Lord, and then come back days, weeks, months, years later and go, oh, I remember what the Lord did here. I remember what he taught me at this altar and if they hadn't remembered for like a year what the Lord had done for them, like he'd kind of grown distant in their hearts and their thoughts, and they came across this stone, it served as a reminder, commune with me. Commune with me. Come and get right with me. You know, I think it's awesome to think back on these ancient days and recognize that this practice of altar building, if you think about it, so ancient, really matched that culture it matched, and I hate to say the word primitive because I think you understand what I mean, but it's like this just fundamental, beautifully basic practice. God, man, rocks. Do you know what I mean? It just seems so simple. You know, it gets a little more complicated over time. And as man grows in knowledge, and we know this, and they grow in advancements and discoveries, technology, architecture, do you know the Lord matches them step for step? He does. We're going to fast forward thousands of years through this timeline of the patriarchs, and we're going to find ourselves in Egypt. I don't know if anyone's gone to Egypt. I want to go, but those pyramids, we still marvel at those pyramids, don't we? We still marvel at these ancient works, the technology, and we think, how in the world did they accomplish that? Well, they accomplished it with the help of a few million Hebrew slaves who made the bricks and the mortar. And we know the Exodus story. It's the next book in the Bible 
Genesis, Exodus, where millions of God's children became slaves to Pharaoh. And we know that Moses is a key player here. I'm not going to go back. If you don't know that story, I want to talk to you about it. Come and find me. But what we often forget about this story is why did God send Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go? Why did he do that? Do you guys know? To worship him. He called them. This is Exodus 8.1. So that they could go out into the wilderness and worship him. You guys know that when God calls us out of our bondage, it's not just for the sake of getting us out of our bondage. He calls us from captivity to him. To worship him. And that's what he wanted to do. So they go through the 12 plagues ending on Passover, which is the first feast. Okay? They journey their baptism through the Red Sea. They find themselves out in this wilderness and there's this famous scene and you guys have maybe seen this. Moses goes up the Mount Sinai, up to the mountain of God, into the cloud, into the lightning, into the thunder and he's up there for a while, comes down Charleston Heston style, holding these stone, the Ten Commandments. And we're like, yes! We remember that part, but that's not all he got when he was up there on that mountaintop. Did you guys know that? It didn't take God 40 days to write those Ten Commandments, okay? That was some slow writing. And you, do got, you guys do know God wrote those. He wrote them, all right? That's not all he got. In Exodus 26, we learn that God also gave Moses a download. He gave him the blueprints for the wilderness tabernacle. Exodus 26, 30 it says, set up this tabernacle according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. So he told him, and it was a heavenly pattern. He gave him a glimpse of what was in heaven. And he said, you're going to build this on earth. So basically, God told Moses to build him a big tent, a big old tent. And God was very specific about how he wanted it built. Hey, Emma Kate and Dreamer, would you guys come and do me a favor? Would y'all come set this tent up for me? I just felt like y'all could do this. Here's a little tent. My, that cannon, they might need a little height if you want to jump up there and do it. Dreamer, jump on up there. God was very, very specific. Now, this is our little tent. I think God's was bigger. <laughs> Probably a little more specific, Right? how he wanted it built, what it should be made of, how they should decorate it. Listen, he got precise on these details. Thank you guys, that looks awesome. Give him a hand. <laughs> Dreamer's not quite satisfied with this looking good, bro. Thanks, bud. You can read all about this in Exodus 25 through 31, 35 through 40. Kids, go home, tell your parents you want to read this. All right? Thank you, amazing assistants. Compared to the picture, this is actually super small. But that's a rough rendering of what it would have looked like. Why did God want this tent? What did he want to do with this big tent? I can tell you right now, he wasn't going to have a circus. Okay? Exodus 25, 8 says this. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. He's like, I called you out to worship me. And now build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. And that's just what he did. We know what by, he came, cloud by day, rested over, 
the Holy of Holies, column of fire by night, right? God came. His presence came, and he dwelt among the men. He said among them, but notice it didn't say in them. That story is going to come later, okay? He wanted to come and dwell among them. Every detail that Christ accomplished, that Jesus accomplished to restore our relationship, to restore our communion with God can be discovered in the details of that wilderness tabernacle. You may be thinking, what? How? Why? You guys, from the gate, the linen walls, the brazen altar, the menorah, the mercy seat, which is the Ark of the Covenant, the person and the work of Jesus can be found in this tabernacle. Now, I wonder if you came and twisted Pastor Tony's arm, if it might convince him to teach a class, because he wrote a phenomenal curriculum on this. He's got hidden talents you know not of, okay? <laughs> it's a great, great teaching, and maybe you guys can say, if we get enough, maybe he'll, uh, he'll make, you can make it worth his while. Fee- pay him with some food. Teach this class, all right? Maybe teach it again. This is like seminary level. You're going to feel like you got educated when you leave that class. But this, this tent, you guys, just like the, the, the altar of stones, was a place of encounter, of approach. It was a place of communion, covenant, forgiveness. Guys, it was a place of worship. And he said he made it in this tent because he wanted to be able to move and go and travel his people through this wilderness. And they could pack up that thing. When the cloud lifted and the, and the, the column of fire lifted and it moved, they moved. And so they had to pack that thing up and move until he had them stop. They went all over that wilderness. But we're going to jump another 440 years. We're just traveling down the timeline of human history here, guys. All right? Into the future. Israel is out of the wilderness. They're into the promised land. They're into Canaan. They're getting settled there. The tribes are there. Um, They haven't listened to the judges. They've cried out for a king. And King Saul was their first, and now we're at a King David. And with the kings came the prophets. And King David is walking around the top of his palace, and it's gorgeous, okay? He's, it's just incredible, and he's walking along, feeling good about his palace and his paneled walls. And he looks out on this hill not far in the distance, and he sees the tabernacle of the Lord. And this pang of guilt seizes him because he's like, here I am in my paneled walls, but the presence of the Lord has to dwell in a tent, And so he gets this idea to build God a permanent temple, okay? He's like, I want to build something permanent. But this wasn't exactly God's idea to have this tricked out temple, okay? Listen to what he says to Nathan the prophet. He says, go back to David and say this. This is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? Have I have never lived in a house From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day, I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Right? But because Israel had taken the land and Jerusalem was going to be their capital, 
because of all of the history of Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, he allows them to put something permanent in place, all right, to build this temple. But this temple, too, must follow the pattern that was set with Moses. David's son Solomon is who actually gets to build that temple. That's a story for another time, okay? Parents, you can maybe walk them through that one. But oh, the splendor of Solomon's temple, you guys. We've gone from these piles of rocks to these linen-clad walls, which is amazing, to this. And there's an awesome little video you can see. Clearly, this is not live footage, okay, of Solomon's temple. You can read all about this in 1 Kings 7 and 2 Chronicles 4. But I'm going to say human knowledge, ability, technology advancements really come a long way from this to that. Has it not? They have established something here. The Lord is keeping right with their pace, right? Amazing, amazing. There are three words to describe Solomon's temple. Kids, are you ready? Three words to describe this temple. Bling, bling, bling. Okay? Remember that. You're going to get questions. Bling, bling, bling. One word. But when it's said three times, there's emphasis. Okay? Bling, bling, bling. What a story to tell. Okay? Solomon's temple. There's just so much history, so much that's happening around this temple. But I need to tell you, because with the kings came the prophets. These were the messengers and the mediators of God. They kept warning Israel. They kept saying, if you don't believe God, you'll be put into exile. If you don't believe him, you're going to end up sinning and you're going to turn your back. You're going to rebel and you're going to disobey. Believe God. Believe what he says. Remember his word. Don't commit the sin of unbelief because that's where all the other things are going to spiral out of control in your life. And guess what? We know Israel, they rebelled against the Lord. And this temple was destroyed. All this work. All this splendor, all this beauty gets destroyed. They're sent into exile. And a lot of prophetic stuff happens, okay? And a lot of that prophetic stuff has dual reference for today. I'll let Tony teach that, all right? But after 70 years, Israel returns. The land is desolate. The temple's destroyed. The foundation stones aren't even there. But with the help of Ezra and Nehemiah, did you know you can read about this? These are two books in the Old Testament. With the help of Ezra, Nehemiah, they rebuild the temple. Isn't that awesome? So they rebuild this, and it's called the second temple. But this little piece of real estate has epic history. Epic history. There is so much at stake on this tiny piece of ground. So much. Years, years, centuries of battles and defense and sieges and captivity, and hostility, and they're trying to protect and trying to protect, the Jews are trying to protect this, all the while rebelling against the Lord. It's gone through some extensive controversy, and we open up the New Testament. We've gained some ground on our timeline, and there's Herod the Great, and he's the contemporary of Jesus, and this guy, if you go to Israel, he liked his building projects. He was obsessed with these building projects. And he does one fixer-upper on the temple. One that Chip and Joanna Gaines 
would be so proud of. He takes this little temple that Ezra and Nehemiah and his people had built, and he's like, I'm going to make it even bigger, right? He does a major fixer-upper on this temple, but ultimately, even that one, Herod's temple, is destroyed, 70 A.D., around 40 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So now it seems like that the Hebrews' system, their entire system of sacrifice and communion with God's been destroyed, right? To this day, did you know, the Jews don't have a sacrificial system. They don't have one, and they're wanting one. In fact, um, they're ready to rebuild the third temple. There's a place called the Third Temple Institute that's in Jerusalem. They have all the things gathered to build a third temple right there on the Temple Mount where there's a mosque, okay? But they want to build it there. They're ready to build this third temple. I am not sure that there's anything more end times than this third temple, okay? If you are looking for a sign, Israel is the super sign for end times. Watch Israel. Watch that Temple Mount. Watch what's happening, you guys. Tony's going to teach more about that. All right? Watch them. This place, this approach, this encounter, worship, it did not end with the temple being destroyed, did it? Their understanding, the Jews' understanding, so they're longing for this third temple, and there is a ton of prophecy around this temple. But do you guys remember in John 2, 19, Jesus prophesied something. He's gone into the temple, and the money changers are there, and he makes a whip. He's over there making a whip. And he drives the money changers. He flips over the tables. Remember, he's like so upset because zeal for the house of the Lord consumes him. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer. And he gets rowdy. He gets excited. And the religious leaders start to question him. And they question his authority. By whose authority do you do this? Give us a sign. We need a sign. And I'm like, he's Jesus. Come on. He's been doing all kinds of awesome stuff. And listen to what Jesus says. Total uh, mic drop moment. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. All right. Now we've, we've already learned because we've learned right here that the tent and the temple were really him, right? Even these old ancient places of worship represented him. Because we've learned that, we know what he's really saying here is, my body might get torn down, it might be put in the grave, but in three days I will rise in resurrection power and the true temple is going to be built, all right? The true the true sacrificial systems in the house, all right? You don't have to have this, the antiquated, ancient version. All of this has been pointing to me. It's been pointing to me. He says in Matthew 21, 42, this is Jesus. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? Read your Bibles. You don't want to get to heaven and him ask you that. Didn't you ever read this? I told you. He's told you, okay? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the Lord doing this. Jesus is the foundation stone of the new temple. Now, if he's the foundation stone, what makes up the walls? Who makes up the walls? There's a list of scriptures that are going to be up here, you guys. If you can't hang with me, just write them down, okay? 
But I want you to turn to 1 Peter 2 if you can. And parents, your kids are doing great, but we're, cl- we're, we're, we're going to land the plane here. I want you to listen to what 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. He says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you're his holy priests. You're his temple and his priests. He's that good. All right? Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. He's saying, listen, because of what I've done and the eternal work of my sacrifice, you don't have to kill innocent animals anymore. I, I, I did that for you. Now offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Come into the temple and offer yourself. I love this. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. You guys can turn there too. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Starting in 16. He says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you? Don't you realize that? That God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You're that temple. Isn't that so cool? There's passages all over the place. I actually had to just work to condense down how many New Testament passages I could that, to even make this in the time frame, which I've already gone way over, okay? Passages everywhere. Turn to Ephesians 2. We'll actually be there for a minute. So if you can turn there. Ephesians 2, 19. He says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. He's saying this because he's saying because of what Christ did, he's reconciled the Jew and the Gentile into one, okay? He's like, you guys who had been so far off from the sacrificial system, you guys who always felt like the outcast, like you were never going to get to be a part of that, guess what? Because of what Jesus did, you are now a part of it. So you're not foreigners anymore. You're not strangers anymore. You are citizens With all of God's holy people, you are members of God's family. Together, I want you guys to say that. Together. Together, we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone of that house is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, You Gentiles are being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Where is God living? Is he just among us? He's in us. He's now in us by his spirit. We are the temple. Paul in Romans 12 says, in view of all this now, our reasonable act of worship now what it looks like to be true worshipers now. In view of all of this, he's showing us what our reasonable act of worship is. We are sacred. You guys need to know that. Your body, who you are in Christ, is sacred. It's holy. It's consecrated. It's set apart. You have been set apart from the world. We are living stones. Isn't that so cool to think about? We are skin-clad 
tents. We are the tent. For the stones or the tent, we are purified temples for the King of Kings. How awesome is that? And he's come not just to dwell, not among us, but in us. Look at Ephesians 3, 10. God's purpose in all of this. What, what, what's he doing? Why was he doing all of this? Was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety. You guys know the church should have variety, right? To all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you know? You are a part of the eternal plan of God. The church, the temple, we are a part of that plan. From the very beginning, it was pointing to this. This eternal plan through Christ Jesus. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. That needs an amen. Amen. To boldly and confidently come into his presence. Because we're not familiar with that sacrificial system. Because to my knowledge, none of you guys have had to kill an innocent animal today. To come into the presence of the Lord. And with fear and trembling. That you had to have this mediator, someone to go before you to sprinkle that blood. Guess what? Because of what Jesus did, we can come boldly into that presence of the Lord. We don't have to shed blood. He did that for us. In verse 14 of chapter 3, Paul, this phrase, when I think of all of this, I want you to think of that phrase. When I think of all of this, do you ever have this memory and you think of it and you're so inside of you, there's just like this energy and this love and this passion and you just don't even know what to do with the emotion when you think of it. That's what Paul's saying here is when I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Verse 17, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. I want you guys to stand. I I really wanted to close with this passage of scripture because here's the thing. There are people in the room that haven't put their trust in God. And that's okay. You're in the house. You're in a great place to do that. There are people who have not ever put their trust in God. And you know, you recognize right here, you're like, I don't have roots that are keeping me anchored. I don't know the anchoring power of God's love. I, don't, I feel tossed about. I don't know what it means to be strong. There are people in the room who've not put their trust in God. There's also people in the room who've been on the journey. They've been sojourning, may have been a little nomadic, and they came across uh, stones of remembrance, and they're like, oh yeah, it's time to renew that covenant. It's time for me to rededicate. It's time for me to renew this communion with God. Maybe this serves as that reminder for you. I want to encourage you guys with the rest of this passage. Listen to what he says. For those of you guys who have put your trust in him, anchored in his love, may you have the power to understand as all God's people should. I want you to know 
that this is inherent right as a child of God to know what I'm about to tell you. Okay? You have a right to know this. You are an heir to this information. To know how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. Did you know that's your right? That God can give you the power to understand that as a child of, of God. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. He's like, you can experience it, but you ain't ever going to understand it fully. And that's okay. That means there's so much more to discover, isn't, isn't there? So much more. You think you've tapped it out. You think you've tapped out God's love. Do you know you'll never fully understand it? You never will. It's not going to run dry. You're never going to get to the end of it and go, well, that's it. That dessert was good. You know, you're, you, it's eternal. It never runs out for us. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. We need that, don't we? Don't we want fullness of life and power that comes from God? Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church. Are we in the church? Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever. We have multiple generations represented here forever and ever. Amen. I agree. I agree. The very next verse, he says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling you've received. That is the essence of walking with him. Live in a life worthy. He's called you. Did you know you've been called? And he's calling you tonight. He's calling you tonight for renewal. He's calling you tonight for encounter, for approach. He's calling you for intercession, for prayer, for forgiveness. He's calling you. You've been called. In case you've questioned it, I'm telling you now, you've been called. You've heard. You've been invited. And we want to invite you guys for just a time of ministry. We're going to bring the house lights down a little bit. We do have communion. And we're going to ask that one person from the family come up and get what you need. If you need to go, if your kids are getting a little restless, feel free to take a couple of those with you, what you need for your family. You can be dismissed. It's okay. But we, we're going to ask you to go ahead. There's places on either side and in the back. You can do that now as I'm talking. Go and get those for your family. Bring it back to your seat. What a time for communion as we remember the timeline of how God chose to commune with us, right? And also... We will have some leaders in the green room over here to your left, my right. If you need prayer, specifically need prayer, let's, uh, let's listen. If you need prayer, there are going to be leaders over there. Leaders, you can go ahead and go into the green room. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ. Maybe you need to put your trust in him for the first time. How exciting. We're glad to be a part of that. But go ahead and do that. The green room's open for prayer. Take communion. I'm going to pray, and we are actually officially dismissed. And you guys can take communion, head on out, do your talking maybe outside while some people enter into communion with the Lord. Let me pray over you guys. Lord, I thank you so much that...
represented in this little wafer, in this little cup of juice, is all the power of Christ, the sacrifice that was made. And as we come to this, this altar of remembrance, this little cup that we hold in our hands, it's a stone of remembrance. And we're reminded of what communion means. It's the atoning work of Christ in our lives. And you came to dwell in our bodies that are not made by human hands. You fashioned us. You got your own hands and you made man in your image. And now you've chosen to dwell in your crowning creation, God, man. Your beautiful temple, your church, your living stones. I don't know about you guys, but I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing it this way. Thank you for your excessive and endless patience with mankind and all the ways that you moved through history for us to get to this point right here to worship you and commune with you. We do not take that for granted for one second. We commit this time to you as you seal our hearts and we renew this covenant. We just say we love you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord.